I think there's a lot of reasons why venture capital is here to stay and it's a great tool. That being said, I also think that there's a number of other tools that are also very appropriate for a range of different entrepreneurs, right? And I think we also need to build those out. And so some of the innovations that I think are pretty interesting in the venture capital space that things like uh, revenue share financing. So instead of investing in equity, what if you instead invested in revenue shares? Today, I'm here with Alex Lazaro, who is a global venture capitalist and author of the fantastic new book, Out Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are Rewriting the Rules of Silicon Valley, very much aligned with the North Star of this show. So I'm very excited for this conversation. I haven't had a chance to fully dive into the book, but I just got a notification on my phone that it arrived at my apartment 30 minutes ago. So I will definitely be giving it a read after this. But Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So why don't we just start off with a little bit about you? What does it mean to be a global venture capitalist in, in, in 2020? Absolutely. So I work for a firm called Cafe Innovation. It's a firm headquartered in Paris that invests across the world. Our 500 million euro fund is a third invested in Asia, rooted out of our Shanghai office, a third pan-Europe um, out of Paris, and a third... Uh, this notional rest of the world, most of that is North America. We have an office in uh, Singapore to cover Southeast Asia. And we have um, a partnership with Africa Invest, which is one of the largest private equity funds in Africa to invest across the continent. We're affiliated with a firm called Cafe Capital, which is a private equity firm that's been around for about 15 years. It's about eight offices globally and uh, about $3 billion under management. And so invest series A through C, five to $20 million checks in startups. Wow. That is a very global venture capital group. That's pretty much the whole outside of Silicon Valley world. So I'm sure that uh, your experience through investing through Cathay is what led to the, the book. But I would love to kind of start off by really just diving into what was the inspiration behind writing this book and kind of what are the, uh, the key themes that, that we're going to be diving into. Yeah, absolutely. So before Cathay, I was working at another firm called Omidyar Network, which is a global investment firm founded by Pierre and Pam Omidyar. Pierre is the founder of eBay. eBay later bought PayPal, uh, where I was investing in financial inclusion businesses, principally in emerging markets um, across Africa, Latam, uh, Southeast Asia, as well as in, in North America, too. Um, and then the genesis of the book is actually outside of my professional investing work. I've been teaching an MBA class at the Middlebury Institute for International Studies, which is Middlebury College's graduate program in Monterey. And many of my students went on or wanted to go and build businesses in their hometowns in the US or in emerging markets. And as I was teaching the class, I wanted to assign them books to prep. And so things like Blitzscaling by Reid Hoffman or Ben Horowitz by The Hard Thing About Hard Things or what have you, uh, which are fabulous books. But I always felt that when assigning them Silicon Valley-centric literature, I always had to contextualize it with the reality of building startups in more emerging ecosystems. And that was the genesis of the book. So the, the name of the book is called Out Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are Rewriting the Rules of Silicon Valley. And the thesis is that everything we know about startup best practices is rooted in a time and a place, Silicon Valley and today, and for a very particular type of asset light software-based company that wants to grow extraordinarily fast. And yet, Around the world, the best entrepreneurs are operating in different ecosystems where there might not be the same depth of capital or the same depth of trained startup human capital, or that might face big, unpredictable macroeconomic shocks. 
And therefore, I think that the best entrepreneurs in Chicago or Detroit or Amsterdam or Bangalore or Nairobi or Jakarta have more in common with the best entrepreneurs in Sao Paulo than they do with those in San Francisco. And yet no one is telling their stories. And that's what the book is about. I think that the best entrepreneurs are not only challenging some of the conventional wisdoms we have in the Valley, in many ways, they are reinventing startup best practice in some fundamental ways that entrepreneurs outside the Valley can and should learn from each other. But also, there's a lot of lessons for the Valley itself to learn from the leading entrepreneurs around the world, particularly in today's day and age as the context, the macroeconomic context is shifting a lot of opportunities to learn from, from entrepreneurs around the world. So that was, that was the genesis. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And, you know, a lot of the inspiration for that book is, or was inspiration for starting this podcast. There's a lack of, you know, well-produced media, high quality, highly sophisticated conversations about startups outside of the, the big tech hubs. Because this, this notion of what does Reed Hoffman say, blitz scaling or hyperscaling, that model might work in somewhere like a Silicon Valley where you have hierarchies that can and, and need to be disrupted. And you have this unique time period where there's just an abundance of capital in one geographic area. And that's just not the reality for the rest of the world. And so one of the themes that it, you know, it seems like you're, you're really diving into with, with the book is uh, the concept of creating and innovating new markets versus disrupting old ones. And the, the term disruption shouldn't really even be used. You know, when we talk about Africa, South America, they don't need things to be disrupted there. They need new markets that are created with the innovations and the new kind of industrial revolution 4.0 technologies that are emerging. So can you talk a little bit about that concept? And it sounds like you're really coming to the same conclusions in the book that we've kind of dove into other podcasts over the past year. I completely resonate with both your vision for the podcast and how you think about the world. Before talking about how entrepreneurs build their businesses in different ways, it's important to reflect about what they are building. And I believe that the best entrepreneurs operating in emerging markets are building a different style of business. In the book, I talk about them as being creators, not disruptors. In the Valley, maybe just some, some context, we're obsessed with this notion of disruption. It comes out of Clayton Christensen's research. And it's this modern day David and Goliath story where the larger incumbents don't serve customers' needs and new, innovative, smaller players come up with a solution that starts off on the corners and the fringes, but over time, as they get better and better, they end up winning the entire market. And that is the reality in many developed countries where there are formal industries to disrupt and you can come with a better solution or a better software thing and that works. But I think you're right. When you look at ecosystems that are on the opposite macroeconomic concepts, that reality, that context is different. And the best entrepreneurs are creators. They are doing three things simultaneously. First, they're offering a product or service which solves an unserved, acute pain point in the formal economy. And second, that solution that they offer is for the mass market. is isn't something that is just top of the pyramid. It's something that works for everyone. And third is creators are really creating things that make us fundamentally rethink the market of the sector. So technology is often a key enabler, but it isn't necessarily the only thing. It often requires business model innovation at the same time um, and a bunch of things to work together to make it successful. And so that I think is the nature of what being a creator is all about. And I think 
as we look to the best entrepreneurs outside the Valley, we see that manifested in a clear way. So talk to me about what you classify or what your thoughts are when it comes to social impact businesses in emerging markets. I guess what I've come to see on the ground and and come to personally believe is that anyone who's building a successful, sustainable business in these markets, in sub-Saharan Africa, in the Middle East, in South America, in Southeast Asia, just the fact that they're building a successful and sustainable business and all the jobs and economic growth that comes along with that, that's impact, right? When, when, when we talk about social impact from the Western standpoint, you know, we're talking about that subject from a very privileged seat where, you know, mm-hmm. society and all these systems we have around us, they, they work. So when we talk about a social impact or through a social impact lens, you know, you have these concepts like a Tom's, right? Where you have, it's like a buy one, give one model. But like one of my frustrations in this whole social impact lens, when, when we talk about uh, climate change, I'm very, very frustrated when I see a, or when I tend to talk or like when people make the case that African countries need to be concerned about, you know, their, their own sustainability practices. Like, I think that, I mean, it's, it's very clear that most of the CO2 is, is spit out by developed economies, not the developing ones. And so the, we need to just focus on getting GDP per capita up in those countries. I think that once we get GDP per capita to a certain size, then everyone's actually going to start caring about the environment. But it's very hard for people there to care about the environment when they're still trying to figure out where their next meal is. And so th- those are some, I mean, those are some of my frustrations when we talk about social impact businesses in those markets. Uh, Cause I think it's a, it's a warped conversation and it's warped because of the privileged seats that we sit in here in the West. But I would love to get your take on that. This is a topic that's super close to my heart. It's the reason I'm an investor. Um, I spent five and a half years at Omidyar Network doing impact investing. And uh, while Cathay is not a impact fund per se, all of the work that I'm looking at has a very strong tech for good feel to it. And so this is really fundamental to the way I think about the world and the reason uh, I invest and I support entrepreneurs. And my belief is, you know, in the Valley, we think of social impact in some ways as a little bit of a separate thing to, to startups. Um, there are C Corps and we've defined it legally that there are B Corps as this separate concept. And I think what is really powerful about the model of entrepreneurs, as you're describing it, that are operating outside the valley, is that the social impact of the business is beautifully married to the operations and success of the business financially. So those two things are interchangeable. Let me give you an example. A business that does off-grid energy access, so Zola, for instance, which is a startup, imagine it does Two solar panels, a battery pack, a couple lights, a radio, et cetera. They can replace what used to be a kerosene light, which is unhealthy, has a risk of burning down, is really expensive, with kind of a pretty modern solution and pretty transformational. For them, their impact is the more people they sell it to and the more people that use the product. And that directly translates with people that are buying the product and are renewing their subscription for it and, and paying for it over time. And so the, the operational success and the financial success of the business is, is 100% married. And therefore, they are, they're not a social enterprise, they're a startup, but the impact is core and it's fundamental. Um, but it doesn't necessarily need to be this D2C play. Like it's, it's easier for impact to be built in when it's a product or service that has a measurable social impact and, and, and you know that. But there are other businesses where the impact is still weaved into the operations 
So a company like Revigo, for instance, which I cover in the book, Revigo is a logistics player in India. There's a massive shortage of long haul trucking, and it's very expensive comparatively to the United States. And the problem that they wanted to solve was uh, a lack of drivers. And one of the things is that the driver experience of driving very far, being away from one's home and one's village, having to come back with an empty load on the way home, and so not even being certain that you're getting paid both directions while still incurring costs of gas, et cetera, created this really poor driver's experience. And so the way Revigo built their business is they actually created 24-hour relays. So a driver would uh, meet at predetermined spots, drive 24 hours in one direction, shift the load to someone else, and drive a load back. And so A, they were home more often. B, because of their tracking system, they could actually increase the amount of loads in both directions. Um, and three, they could just give drivers more money, but also a better life. And so the metrics that that business cares a lot about are uh, driver-related success. So how many nights away from home are they? How many return trips do they have loads for, et cetera? Those are very tied to their ability to retain their best drivers, to have reliable supply, et cetera, which are also tied to the success of the business. And so it doesn't necessarily need to be a give more product to consumer, but you can actually be very thoughtful about it. And I think the secret, kind of the add one, one next step is, it isn't just about intuiting that the business model you have has social impact. It's also about measuring it. It's figuring out what are the key drivers to it and building it into the key KPIs of the business and reporting it internally, but also reporting it to the board, making it the North Star. And that's kind of one of the powerful ways that I think you can make impact be core to the business and core to success and solve some of the problems that, that you were talking about. And I think this is one of the areas where we can look to entre global entrepreneurs for lessons on how best to do this um, to solve problems back home as well. So what does this mean for, for the future of global growth? The future of global growth can't just be restricted to this venture capital asset class, right? It's a niche, especially in emerging markets, that, that exists in, in a broader ecosystem of needs and, and, and capital needs for infrastructure, for hospitals, ports, roads, airports. So what does everything that's going on right now really mean for global growth? Because if you look at like the increase yeah. in capital flows, like in Africa, for example, the whole Africa rising narrative is, as with most things, it's, it's true and it's not true. If you look at the venture capital, like investment asset class, that's doubling every year. But if you look at the broader kind of private equity, foreign direct investment, that's not really increasing in any significant measure over the past year. What's going on, Alex? What, what, what does this all mean? <laughs> well, so first a thought, which is I talked about the direct measurable social impact outcomes of the businesses a second ago. I think one of the things that's really important to recognize is that the job creation that entrepreneurs are doing as they scale their businesses has a very strong impact in, in of itself as well and, and often ripple effects in the ecosystems. One of the things that I've observed is that the best entrepreneurs, um, as they scale their businesses, are often building their startup ecosystems at the same time, mentoring the next generation, investing, et cetera. And so we can talk a little bit more about that, but that's one observation, which is entrepreneurs can do direct social impact through their businesses, but just by scaling their business, they are also having this tremendous social impact in terms of a job creation, training ground, et cetera. Um, that's incredibly powerful. To your question about global capital flows, et cetera, I believe that venture capital is an incredible tool, like caveat, I am a venture capitalist. <laughs> However, I think that it works extraordinarily well for a particular type of startup, where it is a venture-backed startup that 
has ambitions to scale, has a business model and technological innovation, and um, it works very well for the early stages of a startup, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of reasons why venture capital is here to stay and it's a great tool. That being said, I also think that there's a number of other tools that are also very appropriate for a range of different entrepreneurs, right? And I think we also need to build those out. And so some of the innovations that I think are pretty interesting in the venture capital space that, you know, this is still really nascent, but things like revenue share financing. So instead of investing in equity, which is traditional in the Valley and in venture capital globally, um, what if you instead invested in revenue shares. This looks a little bit like the mining industry, which also has really high risk prospecting, et cetera. And you share some portion of the revenue over a certain number of years. There's now a number of startups that are starting to scale and new funds are starting to scale to invest in startups that might not have this exponential growth scaling and and their growth profile looks different. And so they're using a different tool. I think two, I think one of the things that's interesting is some of the experiments around longer term funds and evergreen funds uh, Naspers, for instance, which is one of the biggest global investors, is a publicly traded holding company and thus has a little bit of this evergreen-like structure and can hold on to things for a really long time, notably their Tencent investment, which arguably is one of the most successful venture investments of all time. Um, and then the third is how decisions are made. You know, Traditionally, venture capital is a local business with VCs that I think the saying in the Valley is you can get home, get home from dinner after the board meeting uh, the same day type thing. And one of the things that I think is exciting is people are traveling more, but also uh, with computerized decision-making and things like that, you can start evaluating startups at farther distances um, or or, uh, in companies for that matter. And one of the things that's powerful about that is uh, you get a little bit less bias. So you might be able to fund people that don't just look like the other founders that have been successful before. Um, And so we're seeing more and more of that starting to pop up. And I think those are things that are interesting. Mm. But I don't think that's enough. I think that we need to have more tools available to support entrepreneurs. And some of that is grant funding to de-risk things at the beginning. Some of this could be corporate support and contracts. Some of this could just be more kind of early stage private equity and things like that too, for different style of businesses, different different situations. Um, I, th- I think we just can't use venture capital as a one size fits all tool. I think it works well for certain situations, but but certainly not all. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and and also with respect to venture capital, it does have its place in these markets, but it needs different fund structures. It needs different life cycle structures, the blind pool versus pledge fund. Just different models and different ways of thinking about venture capital, uh, you know, in, in my opinion, are required for these markets. You, you did mention NASPERS. NASPERS is such a funny, it's such a funny story because if you look at just the stock price and how what it's valued at, like the entire thing now is just their 10 cent investment. <laughs> They have, you know, these other assets off to the side, but, you know, you look at the majority of, of the value that, that comprising their market cap, it's like, it's like Tencent. But with, with respect to that, like, what is your opinion on the next Silicon Valley? Like, do you think that China will definitively kind of in the 2020s take over the role that Silicon Valley played this past decade? I actually think the question, where is the next Silicon Valley is a little bit of a loaded question. I actually, my personal perspective is I think we should stop framing the question like Silicon Valley for X and instead say, how do we create a thriving innovation ecosystem that doesn't necessarily look to replicate what are the inputs and the situation in the Valley, um, but instead says, what is the ecosystem and local context in a particular area that might make it world-class at it? I think that Silicon Valley will continue to be one of the bastions of innovation 
in the decades to come. It certainly has the momentum, the capital, the talent. But I also believe that ecosystems around the world are going to continue to rise. There's about 480 startup ecosystems today around the world. And those that will be successful will be those that will understand what are their local advantages and also realize that there are constraints that they face and leverage those as well um, to be successful. And so I think places like Minneapolis, for instance, which has a really strong local healthcare market, could leverage and build something really special that is different than what the Valley has and beat the Valley in certain things. And I think you mentioned China. I think the Chinese ecosystem is totally unique and works for a variety of ways, which we could have a much longer podcast discussion on. But I think that will continue to rise and continue to be a powerful force. But also, you know, Singapore, for instance, I think is really interesting for its launching pad across Southeast Asia. I think Rwanda has done some really interesting things around becoming a, a testing ground for innovation uh, on the continent, despite being a smaller market. I think Nairobi is a city and, uh, and Cape Town and Johannesburg and Lagos are also you know, starting to see a big rise, but with different styles of startups getting built in different places. And I think that the future will lie by understanding, one, what it takes to scale a startup in an ecosystem that is different than the Valley, and two, what are the gaps in that market that exists today and how can, how can we fix it to create kind of one local ecosystem that's strong? And so I hope that we stop calling it Silicon Valley Slopes, Silicon Valley Savannah, et cetera. Instead, just call it, you know, whatever, Nairobi or, or the name of the city. And, and those become self-sustaining local startup ecosystems that thrive because of the local strengths, et cetera. Mm. I agree. Although I, I am a big fan of catchy branding <laughs> that, a, that a city can use to promote itself. So when, when I say Silicon Valley, I'm more referring to the archetype of like what it represents. Yeah. Cause you're right. Like I don't think global cities should be trying to replicate exactly what Silicon Valley has done because like the data's in on the dark side of it. Right. Like, I mean, as with anything in life, there's, there's a duality in things, but Silicon Valley, there's many, many problems that have emerged as a result of this kind of aggregation of wealth to very, very few hands. And I don't think that's necessarily a product of the venture capital model, but it's more a product of just like what happens when you have, I mean, you have the craze that we've, we've had. It's kind of playing out in India as well. It's very, very top heavy over there. Like when, when it comes to VC capital, I think, I, I don't remember that you, you might know the exact numbers better than, than myself, but I believe it's maybe eight, eight or nine startups. Like Oyo, uh, Flipkart have been, I want to say close to in the 80s percent of, of venture capital. And so that, I think that's something that cities around the world need to be very wary of as well. I do need to get out to Singapore. You know, one is, one observation is that I think it's natural that there are going to be startups that will scale and will, as a result of their scale, require like a, a multiple of capital of the other ones. But I think you're right. Like, I think it's important that as ecosystem builders as and, and people that really care, interested parties about the sector, we think about, one, is there enough pipeline? Is there enough access early enough? And also, is that pipeline access fair? So who is getting the money? Obviously, around the world, there's a pretty big gender bias in tech, and I think we need to do strides. I think there's also some more thorny issues that are like uh, socioeconomic bias and how you actually get how do you get capital beyond folks that have a certain network or have gone to the right schools or right employers? How do you like think about that? And, and a variety of the others, right? Like in the US, for instance, the Latino community is massively underrepresented. H how do you solve that pipeline issue? I think that's one. That being said, from an ecosystem development perspective, one of the things that I think is exciting is 
if you look at the data around scaled startups, when a country gets kind of one unicorn, it doesn't necessarily unlock the ecosystem. Two unicorns doesn't. But there's an inflection point where after a few, five, seven, uh, the number of unicorns, and, and I'm using that not as a reflection of the objective of getting to a billion dollar company, but just as a, as a metric on size, that number explodes. And there's a pretty fast acceleration of startups that start getting high valuations. And so that starts unlocking. And I think that's what's happening is as you get a couple founders that have liquidity and a couple employees at some of these early companies that start getting liquidity and they're giving back to their ecosystem, that then starts creating this self-perpetuating prophecy, a little bit like the PayPal mafia or the Fairchild story um, in the Valley. We start getting these things. And so, you know, in the beginning, it'll look lopsided with capital, but I hope that things like Flipkart and others, that the founders will end up giving back. And I think Binny Bonsal is an interesting example of someone that, you know, who's been giving back to his ecosystem uh, after his Flipkart exit and actually throughout and is now launching a, a startup helper and a fund, et cetera. And, and I actually think those things will, will scale. And so if I was going to put my ecosystem building hat on, I'd say, look, you have to think about the pipeline for sure and think about equity and think about capital going there and tools and help. But also you need to make sure that some of these uh, companies are successful and, and have the, the ability to scale and, and exit because that ultimately will also start driving that self-fulfilling hamster wheel, perpetual machine type thing as well. Alex, we, we've been recording for 30 minutes and you're telling me you're, you're just now putting your ecosystem hat on? <laughs> I, th- I thought you had that on at the beginning. Uh, sorry. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I actually have a theory that countries that tend to be more on the nationalistic side of things are going to have an easier time cultivating a startup ecosystem hmm. because there's more of a sense of kind of sacrificing for the broader country ecosystem. And that's something that's required for, you know, that initial wave of, I mean, certainly angel investments, but kind of the, the ethos of you have a big successful exit. And instead of just going to, you know, the Caribbean, buying your island and just hanging out, you're, you're reinvesting your time, your capital and your expertise back into the country's ecosystem. I think if you actually look at, you know, the top, and I've done this before, the top 20 ecosystems, most of those countries, if you look at the data, tend to be on the more nationalistic side. And that's, you know, India. Nigeria, Brazil, obviously the US. I need to take some time to actually map out that correlation, but I do sense there's a strong correlation uh, and causation there. But Alex, this has been fantastic. I really appreciate you joining. Is there any anything else we didn't cover that you wanted to cover? This is just a fabulous conversation. Big fan of what you're building and looking forward to continuing the conversation together and continue supporting entrepreneurs around the world. Thank you for having me. Awesome. By the way, let's let's close out with with the book. Can we get it on Amazon or where, where can we get it? Yes, the book's name is Out Innovate, How Global Entrepreneurs from Delhi to Detroit are Rewriting the Rules of Silicon Valley. You can get it on Amazon, but also at all major bookstores and uh, other book sites as well. All right. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you so much for having me.